Thank you for listening to the New Life Church podcast. If you need any information about our church or if you'd like to give online, please visit us at newlifekingman.com. Praise God. Pat, we love you. Amen. We love you, Pat. We we know that God's going to do good things with you and we bless you as you move into the next place in life for yourself. Amen. Hallelujah. Isn't God good? Praise God. Well, this morning, uh, as you've probably figured out, I'm not going to be ministering this morning, but we've asked a very close friend of ours to come and to minister to us. This man's been uh, a great friend of this church, and he's been a great friend of mine, and uh, he has uh, uh, really spoken into my life. I've I, I have officially known him for probably about 35 years, but in the last probably 15 years have gotten really to uh, know him well and, and, and just uh, fellowship with him. And so uh, I'm excited for the message that he's going to bring to you. So let's give Pastor Greg Johnson a great big hand as he comes. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Praise the Lord. Well, you're all you're with me. Praise God. I trust you all had a good Thanksgiving, and um, it's, it's good to be here. My wife and I are no longer in Texas. We're, we live in California now, so keep us in prayer. It's like another nation, and uh, we're actually in the Palm Springs area, which is weird, and uh, playing shuffleboard every day. No, not really. This is we moved there to help take care of my wife's uh, parents. And uh, that's how many know it's a good thing to take care of your parents. They took care of us and we couldn't do anything for them. And now we're taking care of them. And so uh, we understand that world. And so, and in the meantime, we've been preaching around in different churches and I was in Thanksgiving in Prescott with my family. And this is my little tour through here to, to stop and see John and, and Kathy and Harry and Joni and Alec and his wife. And so it's good to be here this morning with you. Don't you feel the Lord's presence here today? And it's, uh, I, I, in the first service, I, I told them, I said, oh, I, your place is all remodeled and everything. And, and John told me it was once the last time you were here too. So it's like, <laughs> That's why I'm in Palm Springs. It's the land of forgetfulness. <laughs> Nobody has a memory there. It's great. So uh, anyhow, I want to minister a sermon this morning I've entitled God's Unexpected Champion. And I wanted to say, from the other side, don't, don't get mad at me if I, if, I, if I poke something of yours or something that you like or that you're about, because that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm, I'm laying a groundwork here for a, a bigger story. Sometimes you preach on things, people get mad because you, they think you're attacking something that they like or that they think is groovy or whatever. And so that's not my purpose. I, I, I don't have any dog in that fight, okay? I'm sharing what the Lord put on my heart. Amen. And about, I've pastored since 1974 and uh, I pioneered three churches. I've pastored uh, around the world, preached around the world. So I'm not coming to you as an angry uh, boomer. You know, I'm not in any of that. And, and I, I like young people. I like technology. And so, but there's, I, I want to just share with you some thoughts that have been in my spirit about some things. And so I'm, uh, I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And this is the story of David and Goliath, because I want to draw some parallels between this story where a unusual giant confronted the people of God. People of God were terrified in his presence. And nobody would rise up and go against him. And uh, God raises up a champion. And so I want to draw a parallel between the world that we live in, that is the church of Jesus Christ. We are in a very pivotal time. It's a very different time. And uh, I'm 68 years old. Not, not, it's not very old. I'm actually quite young and exuberant. Uh, but, but the fact is, fact is, is that the world has changed so much. It's unbelievable sometimes to realize the change that has come, especially as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me read this story to you, and then we'll get into this God's unexpected champion. In Bible days, when they went to war, um, it wasn't just about politics. When America goes to war, it's political or it's financial, fiscal, or something like that. Uh, We fight for secular-type reasons. But in Bible days, there were spiritual overtones to the fight. 
because you really had God, the kingdom of light against the kingdom of darkness type thing. And uh, it wasn't political, it was different. And so this battle that we're gonna t read about this morning has spiritual overtones because these are God's people versus their sworn enemies, the Philistines, and the champion that they send out. And so in those days, they would many times, when they, when they came to battle, each of the armies would send out a champion. That's why he was out there. He was out there because this is a time-honored tradition in those days that before you all went to war, you send out your best man, they send out their best man, which should have been King Saul. But they, you know, instead, no one will go out. There's intimidation. There's all this stuff going on. So I want to pick the story up in um, First uh, Samuel 17, uh, verse 4. A champion named Goliath. That's where the, that whole concept of two men fighting and, and representing their armies came from. A champion named Goliath was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He's over nine feet tall, had a bronze helmet on his head, and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we'll become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. The Philistine said, this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. This is ancient trash talk. If you don't know, this is what this is. Okay. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Here are God's people who are unable to rally a champion against an intimidating enemy who is huge, who is frightening, who is larger than life, bigger than human. I want to talk about the challenges before us as a church this morning. There's little argument in this room, I, I wouldn't think, that there's probably never been in modern history a more difficult time for people of faith in the United States of America. The media is not for us. The entertainment industry is not for us. The educational institutions are not for us. We're living in a time where our faith is being forced to the margins. From a time in America where the church was the center of every city, from a time in America where uh, laws were created coming from a biblical context and the one nation under God was on our money and for a time it was on our hearts. But in recent years, this has been changing and it's been changing at a rapid pace. And in studying and in reading and in research, one of the things that they're finding out is and looking at the church because people there are a lot of people that are concerned about where the church is going, what it's going to become. And so these surveys have been done. And back in 2011, there was a Barna survey done that revealed that the church had a dropout problem, that we were losing a younger generation. And they were interviewing people that had been involved in church as young adults had grown up in church and been around church. And 59%, in 2011, 59% of kids that grew up in church were leaving the church. After a certain age, they were done. No more pizza and youth parties, they're out. And they've gone on to other things because the culture was more attractive outside the church than inside of the church. A recent study that was done by the Barna Group across 26 nations in the world was looking at the millennial generation and measuring how they're doing in their faith, which the measurement of them is the measurement of us. When you whine about millennials, we built them. Okay? So understand that before you get all generationally on me. All right? Okay? But in this study that was done, it was revealing that in less than a decade since 2011, the proportion of 18 to 29-year-old dropouts has increased to 64%. So now this morning, nearly, nearly two-thirds of all young adults who at one time attended church goers at church have dropped out, at, have, have dropped out for a while and some forever. And the conclusion this study came to was that today's American society 
is especially and insidiously faith repellent. In other words, when you come out of church, you come out of your youth group and you come out of your hanging out with your Christian friends and you enter college or university or the job market, you're not finding people that are going to be welcoming your faith. You're not going to find people that are, you know, Facebook doesn't care about your faith. They don't care about your faith. In fact, your faith can get you banned. You make certain statements, they'll, they'll just they'll take you out because faith has become something that they have attached a hate label to it. They've attached a bigot label to it, and the media has very successfully created an atmosphere where when you declare yourself openly as a follower of Jesus Christ and a believer in his death and resurrection, you're instantly marginalized. So the challenge this represents to us, as a pastor of many years, I can tell you this is my challenge, is how do we grow a people of resilient faith? a faith that can stand against any attack, any question. How do you build a faith in people today against a huge negative cultural giant that is our modern world? How do you do that? How are we gonna build these people that are gonna be able to stand and hold to the authority of scripture that's being challenged on every front? Everything God created is being attacked. In the beginning, God's, he made them male and female. That's under attack. And, you know, marriage under attack, yep. unborn children under attack, believing in anything that is an absolute, that has a biblical value to it, is viewed as superstition and ignorance, whether it's gender assignment, viability of the unborn, everything God created and gave order concerning is under attack by this cultural giant that is literally defying the living God. This society shakes its fist. Talking heads shake their fist and mock God openly. And much of the church is like the children of Israel, terrified, dismayed, cowering before an enormous giant that has all the power, all the cards, all the influence, is controlling the narrative, and we're bowing. Recent story in the news about Chick-fil-A that for years had supported uh, 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 fellowship of Christian athletes in the Salvation Army under pressure from gay activists finally backed away. They said, we're not going to support the Salvation Army. We're not going to support the fellowship of Christian athletes because they support traditional marriage. That's their sin. That's the huge, ugly thing that they do is to believe, to have the audacity to believe that marriage is a man and a woman. They bowed to that. They had a new CEO. The former CEO is grieved beyond words. But the new CEO, and so the minute he did that, the minute he took a step back and said, listen, we just want to accommodate, you know, we don't want to be, hey, they said, oh, you're going to have to also cut loose uh, faith, uh, focus on the family, James Dobson. He's a hater. So when you take a step back, they'll just step right into that space and push it back. And there has to come a place where we draw a line in the sand. And say, we don't back up anymore from this. And so the church, though, in many places is backing up because the, the cultural, the social, the technological agenda is forcing us to reevaluate do we really believe the Bible? Can we really trust the Bible? Or, or are we going to create a new narrative where some of the stuff God said really isn't true? Because our world doesn't like it. So you have to base truth on something. People say, well, that's just a book. Well, everything you believe is from a book. Come on. Come on. Somebody else's book. I remember hearing Jack Hayford make the statement, everything is different this morning, but nothing has changed. And what that means for me is that Jesus said his last words to us before he ascended was go into all the world and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Listen to what I said. I have one job this morning, to teach the people that I shepherd to obey everything Jesus said. I don't have any other job. I don't have any other task. I will be judged for nothing else. I won't be judged for, I won't be judged for excellence. I won't be judged for relevance. I'll be judged for truth. 
And so lock that in, that you and I have got to come to a place where we understand that our task has not changed. Everything has changed, but nothing is different. Our job is still the same, preach the gospel, get people saved, disciple them, establish them, and, and go out and reach more until Jesus comes. There's no other job, there's no other task. And we are so easily sidetracked, we're so easily moved in these little corners where we just get caught up in, in being happy with each other. We forget there's a world out there that we are the only light and the only salt they will ever see. So here's a burning question. How do we, how, you know, how, how do we make this happen? It isn't about how do we do church or attract more people. I just get so tired of that. I've been through that. I've jumped through every one of those hoops. But how do we build disciples? In this culture, how do we captivate a young mind to live for God without compromise? How do we build that? Because believe it or not, that's what, that, that, that is what our job is. And I, I have this great fear sometimes we're going to stand before God and say, Lord, look at what we did. He goes, I wasn't doing that. No, but look at this. This is awesome. He goes, I wasn't into that. I was, I was into what I told you I was into. I was only into what was in the book. Oh, well, this is so cool, though. He doesn't really care about cool. He cares about truth and his nature and righteousness and justice. That's who he is. And so there's something here that it will help us. And so one of the things that dawned on me that um, needs to happen in the church is a, a, a different equation. And there's, a, there's an equation. I, I, I stole this from a guy. I won't give you his name because that, that would blow it up. But he said, realism plus hope equals resilience. In other words, people need, they, they, they need realism, they need reality, and then they need hope. And if those are balanced, that'll make them strong. If you just give them, if you just give them reality, if I just stood up here this morning and quoted all the facts and figures, you'd be overwhelmed. You'd say, I'm out. <laughs> We're doomed. It's over. You know, let's build up, get a, a refuge in the mountains and some guns and some fried food and we hang out up there, you know. <laughs> we become doomsday preppers, okay? So if you just give people realism, reality without hope, it's just negativity and pessimism. And I don't want to spend every, every Sunday of my life cursing the darkness and reminding everybody how bad things are. But if you just give people hope without reality, you just give them cloudy dreams. You give them something that, that they need both. And as the Bible is clear, the Bible you know, equation is this, where sin does abound, grace doth much more abound. That's how it does it. It doesn't just say, well, there's sin and people are sinning and it's dark and it's evil and they're perverted and they're bad, bow your heads. No, it's not just the darkness. It's the light. And so that's what gives the hope. And so the wage of sin is death. Bow your heads. No, the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is life eternal. And so there's reality and hope that creates resilience. And so some churches never touch on reality. Never preach on sin. Never talk about what people are really doing. You're answering questions nobody's asking. You're not touching the problems that people are really going through. You're not dealing with the stuff. And so you have to have the reality, but you just can't preach just that because I've been in that. But you have to bring a hope that, listen, you're battling darkness. You're dealing with issues. You're struggling with your lust and this and that. But there's an answer for that over here in Jesus Christ. Yes. And so reality with hope creates strength. And so... Let me give you some realism this morning. Let me give you some reality. Now, you might not like reality. It's like a bit of medicine, but I want you just to take it down quickly, hold your nose, and we'll get through this. All right? The book called Faith for Exiles, written by David Kinneman. His father, Gary Kinneman, pastored City of Faith in Phoenix for years. In this book, they talk about this study of 26 countries, churches and Christians in 26 countries, and they brought all the data down to these four specific groups that are re represented in the state of the church right now around the world. Four groups. Number one group, prodigals. 
These are the people that are ex-Christians. A lot of ex-Christians out there. People that were once engaged in the church, they were active, but at a certain age, they walked away, made a definite choice. They're no longer Christian, and so they're no longer involved in church. They're prodigals. They're out there. Second group is nomads. These are the people who were engaged in Christian churches, and they still believe in a way, but they no longer attend any church. They've outgrown the church, the church's institution, the church is the man, the church is whatever. And so they are still believers, but they refuse to be involved in any kind of organized church or religion. Third group, the biggest group, are the habitual church goers. This is the group that people that go to church at least once a month, would consider themselves highly committed. <laughs> they go to church once a month. They might even go to a Bible study during the week. They share their faith from time to time. They serve the poor. And these people, you know, uh, or, or these people that are, you know, they uh, volunteer at church. They're your workers and stuff. But these habitual churchgoers, if you put their life up against a basic Christian narrative or framework of what a Christian life is, they don't, they're not the same. They just go to church. Doesn't affect their entertainment habits. Doesn't affect their personal habits. Doesn't affect their sexual purity. They just go to church. And if the only real difference is what they do Sunday mornings. They're habitual, but they're there faithfully. But the gospel hasn't had enough effect upon them to totally cause a repentance and a turning away from an old life. They've turned like part way and they, they have just enough God to be annoying. Prodigals, nomads, habitual churchgoers. Fourth group, smallest group of all, resilient disciples. There are people out there that are resilient disciples. They're living out their faith. They pray daily. They read their Bibles. They share their faith. They're, they're, they're involved in, 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 in serving God's community. And they are a remnant, basically, in our modern world. If you look at these four groups... And you can look at them in, in Asia, you can look at them in Europe, you can look, look at them in Pan Pacific, you can look all these different areas. But if you look at them just in America, the study just in America, because the breakdown in America, not South America or Central America, but just America, because the vast majority of Christian product comes out of America. We, all the podcasts, videos, publishing, music, TV, America is king when it comes to Christian stuff. But on the other side of the coin, while America has this strong producing of Christian stuff, we're also rapidly becoming the most secularized nation in the world at a rapid rate, at an, almost an unprecedented rate to where anything Christian, a cross on a hill can be contested, a Christmas tree can be contested. I mean, it was a, a, a manger scene upsets people. I mean, saying Merry Christmas makes people mad. They want to shoot you and take you to court. You know, you have a generation, you have a world where anything that is Christian in America is coming and becoming suspect. And so we are secularizing at an alarming rate. And so at the present time in America right now, among the prodigals, is about 22% of people that went to church that quit church are now prodigals. That's just in America. 30% are disconnected. These are the nomads. These are the ones that don't attend church. They might attend a home thing or something like that. But the dominant group in America, 38% are the habitual churchgoers. Remember, attend church regularly, volunteer for church work, but do not live a consistent Christian lifestyle. They are cultural Christians only, 38%. The largest group in America are people that go to church, but their Christian life, has, their, their faith has no real effect upon their lifestyle. When it comes to resilient disciples, the ones that are sold out, the ones that are living it every day, 10%. 10%. What's interesting, because of technology, these stats they did around the world, is that for the first time in world history, an age group are more alike each other around the world than they are their own culture. In other words, millennials... In England, millennials in Asia are more like millennials in America than they are their own culture. 
They share common values regardless of their ethnic background. That's never happened before. That's because of technology. That's why you have a resonating with the, the, the protesters in Hong Kong. Young, those are young people in Hong Kong that are protesting in the streets. And they're resonating with, you know, kids in Huntington Beach or kids, you know, in Seattle. Because you have this global connection which has come to them through technology and they share a common thing. And so whether it's Brazil or South Korea or Great Britain, they're all the same. One of the most interesting things is that the, the one nation that has the strongest, the highest number of resilient disciples, Kenya, Africa. When I was a kid growing up, that was the thing. I'm going to Africa for Jesus, you know? That was like the dark, the dark continent. And now for the first time in history, that Africa is sending missionaries to America. They're looking at us, looking at our churches, and saying, those people need Jesus. That's what they're saying. I'm just, listen, don't get mad at the messenger. This is just, it's all out there. So that's the challenge we face. That's, that's the realism. We need to hear that. I'm not making this stuff up. I don't know what this means to you, but I know what it means to me. My stage in life, you know, in, my, in my mind, it's like, God, business as usual in the church has to be over. We can't just keep coming like it's always going to be here. You can't keep walking in this door like this, you'll always be able to do this. Because you, you could be one election. You could be one election from not being able to do this. And not be able to preach what you believe. Not be able to say publicly what you believe. So there has to be some place where the church draws a line in the sand and wakes up and says, God, we want to be the church. We want to be what you've called us to be. We, we want to represent you. And so uh, the tide is growing against us. And the bias against faith is growing. And so just going to church... And giving Jesus a perfunctory glance from time to time, hey, Jesus, is not going to stand. It, you, you won't stand because you'll bail on that before you'll bail on the culture. The times are changing. I think Dylan said that. But this article, this book was saying that right now it's becoming more difficult and harder to be a public Christian in a post-Christian country than it is in a totally non-Christian country. In other words, it'd be easier for me to be a Christian in Indonesia than it would in LA. Because of the bias and the constant attack and, and, and the educational system and everything else, where they're just flooding it with perversion and flooding it with all this stuff. And, that, and they're teaching your kids. If you're a Christian this morning, this is an amazing time to be alive. I'm honestly glad I get to see this. Because I was born in revival. I was saved during what is being called now the fourth great awakening. Was the Jesus movement. In the late 60s and early 70s. That swept across the country and around the world. Of young kids like me. Hippies. Who were burning colleges. And draft cards. And tearing down the the man and the institution, and God says, let's just save them. <laughs> let's just save them. We'll make preachers out of them. It'll be awesome. And literally, you know, changed a generation. One of the things that is highlighted in all of this chaos that's going on in the world right now is these generational angst, is this battle of generations. I'm a boomer, whatever that means, what's 46, 64. There's a lot of boomers in this room today. But these, these battles that like, it's like boomers versus millennials versus the Zoomers, they're the next ones. And then the builders and the Xers and the, you know, is it, you know, that's created by the media. In God's church, your old men dream dreams, your young men have vision. That's God's church. It's sons and daughters, old men, young men. It's not one generation. And so th th that whole angst that gets, is out there, the internet just produces this rubbish to create drama and unrest. 
And none of this is about generational superiority or inferiority because it's a bigger picture. And in the Bible, it wasn't like, well, I'm a Jesus generation. I was here when he was alive. Well, I'm a Paul generation. No, they didn't have any of that. A Bible generation was everyone who was alive right now. <laughs> so the problems we're facing aren't going to be solved by one. It's like all of us, every age, this generation, if your heart's beating, you're part of this generation. We're the ones upon whom the mantle falls to fix some things. And so what's our response going to be? It's a considerable challenge. Let me talk to you about the champion that's against us. Because in the story of David and Goliath, you, is it, you find the word champion used. It's an interesting word. It's the, he's the face of the enemy. He's the, he is the manifest representation of all that opposes God's people. He is the manifest representation of all that opposes God's people. In, the world, in our world this morning, there is another champion that has come out and challenged the church. There was another champion that has come out and basically said, you know, we are better than you. We are bigger than you. You are irrelevant in our eyes. Send out a man and I will kill him. And you will serve us. That was Goliath's story. That was Goliath's confession. And in our world this morning, this new champion is called in a book by David Kinnaman, Digital Babylon. It's an interesting term, Digital Babylon. And his... His survey, he's saying that perhaps the greatest antagonist to building resilient disciples today is digital Babylon. Let's talk about Babylon for a moment because it's a, it's a term you've all heard. But in scriptures, there was a real Babylon. That was, this, that was the nation of the king was Nebuchadnezzar. That was the people that had risen to power at when God's people had backslid, had gone into idolatry. God used Babylon to conquer God's people tear down the temple and take them captive into Babylon. That's where Daniel went. That's where the three Hebrew children were, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's where they went. They were a people into exile for 70 years. So here you are. You're a worshiper of the living God. You have a temple that Solomon built. You're worshiping God. You're, you're following all the feasts, all the festivals. And then one day you're taken into Babylon where everything is pagan. There's, and I don't know what you have in your head, is God's people were, were kind of like more, um, more backward looking than Babylon. Babylon was sharp. B Babylon was happening. Babylon had one of the seven wonders of the world. Babylon had science and astrology. Babylon was sophisticated. And these, these folks are over here worshiping one God and one temple. What's up with that? And they brought him in and began to expose them and, be and began to work with them to change their faith. And they became known as an exile generation. And here you were having to, as a, as, as a child of Israel, here you are a worshiper of the one true God, and you're having to hold on to your faith in an entire culture that's putting pressure on you to dump it. Dump it! Your parents gave you that. It's useless. It's worthless. This, this, look at this big, glorious world out here. Meet Goliath. Come on. Babylon is a historical reality, but in, is also a spiritual reality. The, the, the concept of as Babylon is a spiritual reality is that it was a city dedicated to rejecting and standing against God. It came from Babel. Or they built the tower and God had to come down and say, let's stop them. In other words, it was the entire representation of Babylon was against God, rejecting God, and elevating human power. A city dedicated to people that wanted to be like God. That's why when you read it in the book of Revelation in the New Testament, the language of Babylon is used to describe any human culture that rebels against God and wants to trust in human ability and human power, human wisdom, and human technology. The Babylonians believed they were descended from a race of God-like people. That's what they believed. That's what their religion taught. They had their own faith, had their own history, had their own legacy, their own myths. They believed the world had been overtaken by a tremendous flood and that they were the ethnic descendants of people that were superhumans who had this supreme knowledge and they saw themselves as more enlightened than ahead of the rest of the world. And the vision of Babylon... 
one thing, make the rest of the world Babylonian. Conquer everybody, bring them into subjugation, and we'll establish a utopian future. We are the cultural elites of our time. That's what they believed. And God's people have been taken there. And they had to live out their faith as exiles. That is coming. If it's not already here, that could very well be on its way. Learning to live your faith in a world that sees you as foolish, unenlightened, uneducated, and backwards. And the point this morning is this. We are living in a digital Babylon, a floating Babylon that is seeking to embed its values in all of us by the constant access it has to us. Never before in the history of the world has information been able to get to every single human being instantaneously. And people are absorbed by the, the capacity to hold up a screen and spend their, their life in front of a screen getting their identity, getting their knowledge, making their relationships. It's all happening here. And do you think the people that control the information love Jesus? Is that what you think? You think they're, they want to help you build your faith? You think Mark Zuckerberg lays awake at night thinking about ways to help believers become stronger Christians? I'm just being cynical. Part of my generation, live with it. But my point is this. The hard truth is the next generation, this generation, is being discipled by screens. Who has the most, who has the most input? Me, this morning? <laughs> no. Long after I'm gone and dead, I have the screen. And there'll be impact pumped in. And I'm not against technology. Hello? <laughs> I'm not against technology. It always tells me you've shaken it. Dismiss me. But, all right. But here's the thing. The article said screens demand our attention. Screens disciple us. The power of digital tools and the content they deliver are incredible. And we are the first generation of humans who cannot rely on the earned wisdom of previous generations to help us live with these rapid changes. Instead of older adults and traditions, many young people turn to friends and algorithms. And so if you think that that's not going to cause a change in, in the, your values, the way people think, the way they learn... This is the screen age. And digital tools and devices and content drive our perceptions. They drive our reality. And they offer the illusion of total control. And the, I have, I'm endless choice. Whatever I want. Whatever I want. And the idea of, of, of access to everything. But instant access to information is not wisdom. You don't get wise because you, you read something or you saw something. It's, it's pretty cluey that everyone on the internet's not wise. Everybody on Twitter is not using their noggin. The deception is that knowledge is wisdom. That because I can, I can Google anything I want, therefore I'm wise. No, you're not wise. You're not wise unless your life's based on truth. Because if it's all a myth, bro, if everything you believe is just internet traffic and not the Holy Spirit, there's a new giant on the block. And if we don't, if, if we don't find a way to defeat him, we will serve him. The Babylonians believed they were superhumans. They believed they were, they, the Babylonians linked to Goliath. They're linked to him because some of the explanations of Goliath linking to other characters in Scripture, like the king of Og who slept in a 13-foot bed, and these are the offspring of fallen angels and human women, and the Babylonians linked themselves to that. So it's no stretch that Goliath represents Babylon larger than life, superhuman, and taunting the church. 
and taunting God's people. Digital Babylon has our attention 24-7. The church doesn't have your attention 24-7. And just like the parable of the soils, the seed may land, but the ground is so crowded and too cluttered, there's no room for anything to grow. Trivia is choking out truth. And the reason that's important is, and I want you to hear me out, the reason that's important is because being a Christian involves some deep spiritual relationship. You can't Google that. You, 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 can't, you, know, you can't like that on Facebook and it mean anything. I have over a thousand some friends on Facebook. But a lot of them, I don't even know who they are. I was just trying to build a number back in the day, you know. And the reality is there's no depth there. There's nothing there. If you're like me now and somebody posts something, I, I'm, like, I'm not going to write back and say, just reading your post and it gave some deep thought to all the things you said and it reminded me of a time when I was a child. Blah, 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 blah. No, just... <laughs> right? Just push the button. There you go. Praise God. Good to be a brother, though. Good to be friends. Tight. But what's happening is... Our longing for deep spiritual relationships being choked out by binged, you know, binge television, immersive gaming, and endless social media scrolling. It's where there's nothing building there. That isn't even reality. Now, I told you, I warned you ahead of time, so don't get too angry. And don't get me wrong. The screens we gaze at in and of themselves are not bad. And they, and they can be tools for great good. And, but if you're not vigilant, if you're not intentional, digital Babylon will replace your pursuit of the deeper things in God. Digital Babylon will replace your pursuit of deeper things in God. Uh, I was talking to Pastor John, and I agree with we're talking about, I realized a few months ago, actually about almost a year ago, that my attention span had been damaged. And when I would get down to pray, I couldn't pray for long before I had to check. Maybe someone wanted to tell me they liked cookies. Yeah. Or maybe there was a cat video that I was going to miss. You with me? And I realized, God, here I am taking my attention off of talking to you to check this device. Now, maybe you folks are incredibly disciplined. God love you. Yeah. But I just don't believe you. Sorry, I want to. <laughs> but it dawned on me that I had allowed my own attention span and my own time with God to be damaged by my endless checking Come on. on my social status. I hope somebody liked that picture I put on because that was an awesome picture of me. <laughs> Let me get off that. But we've gone from a world where faith was central to our world to where it's pushed to the margins. And what's central to our world now is this world of internet traffic and information, entertainment and knowledge. Digital Babylon's captured us. Article, or actually a book by a guy named Richard Freed called The Tech Industry's War on Kids says quickly or quietly using screens and phones for entertainment has become the dominant activity of childhood. Read it again. Quietly using screens and phones for entertainment has become the dominant activity of childhood. The power and pull of screens in the lives of teens and young adults is unreal. Even using a conservative estimate, the typical young person spends nearly 20 times more hours per year using screen-driven media than taking in spiritual content. And for the typical young churchgoer, the ratio is still more than 10 times as much cultural content as spiritual intake. How can we hope to shape the hearts and minds of the next generation with the weight of information stacked against spiritual formation? That is our challenge. In the New Babylon, the Bible is just one voice. It's not the authoritative voice. Well, this, this actor said this, this star said this. This book said this. this. A professor said this. A new thing says this. It's not unusual to hear modern Christians stepping away from the clear teachings of Scripture because it doesn't fit Babylon. 
Traditional marriage doesn't fit in Babylon. Male and female is the only gender that doesn't fit in Babylon. It, it doesn't fit. And so you will either become more like Babylon or you become more like Jesus. That's the realism. Here's the hope. How many are glad for a little hope this morning? <laughs> yeah, I scare them sometimes. Let me talk to you about God's champion among us. One of the things that, after all, when I was studying this, it, it depressed me. I honestly did. I thought, Lord. But then as I began to, to just pray and seek the Lord a little bit, I realized, God, this is no surprise to you. The hippies weren't a surprise. The millennials aren't a surprise. It's like the, the most terrible generations ever lived. No, they're just people. They're just kids. And I don't know if you understand this, but you do not remain the same person throughout your life. Just remember Greg Johnson told you that. Even though you may be cringing right now saying, I hope he dies. <laughs> I'm saying to you, you are not the same person throughout your life. As one person when I was 17, you wouldn't have liked him. <laughs> well, some of you would. <laughs> Wasn't the same person in my 30s, late, late, early 50s, and I'm in my late 60s. You're not the same person. You see things differently. There's things that I would fight for when I was 18 that I don't even care. Who cares? <laughs> Let the kids fight over that. <laughs> I'm done with that. You change through the years. And so that, that is a process of life that God has put there. And so, you know, the, there's, there's a wisdom that comes, and it only comes through making dumb decisions, making bad choices. And so God has never been surprised. We've never overtaken him. And this is especially true when it concerns his church and his people. Because at the very time Goliath is stepping up, and the armies of Israel, who like are a representation of the, you know, the church is, is cowering and there's no champion. God's been preparing a champion. He's been preparing a, someone to deal with Goliath. And he's a young man. He's not an old prophet. He's a young man. And he's a young man with an anointing on his life. And it's an anointing nobody knows about. Because he's developed this anointing by alone with God. He's developed this anointing spending time with God in hidden places. He's different from his brothers. And somehow out there alone with the sheep, he's learned the heart language of God. He's written psalms to God, love songs to God. And yet he's a warrior inside. He's killed a lion, he's killed a bear with his hands, watching over and protecting the flock. And he's done all this, he with his hands and a, a sling. And one day he's sent to the battlefield to bring supplies to his brothers. He's not a soldier, and so he's kind of, you know, if, you, if you're in the military like I was, you know, when you're in the military, you treat civilians like losers. <laughs> Sometimes, if they're not fighting men, you know. And so he's met by the soldiers in 1 Samuel 17, verse 28. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart. You just came down to see the battle. Here's God's champion he's been preparing. When he shows up on the scene, the older generation says, go away. You don't have what it takes. You're full of pride and insolence. You're just, you're, you're, you're too big for your britches. God's champion is not well received. He's accused of having an ulterior motive, of being selfish. He's told to go back where he came from. David answers and says, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. Now when the words which David spoke were heard, they were reported to Saul and Saul sent for him. Then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him, the giant. Your servant will go and fight this. I'll be your champion. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. Here's the older generation doing what we do sometimes, telling the younger generation, you can't do this, you're too young. You're inexperienced. How come this younger generation faced this giant? Listen to David's answer. I love his answer. 1 Samuel 17, verse 34. But David said to Saul, 
Your servant's been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. <laughs> Young man, untried in public, but he's been tried in private. If I could, if I could leave any lesson, any truth to, to young people is that your private life is more crucial than your public life. What you are when you're alone, what you are when no one's looking is more important than anything else about you. And David had built in the hidden places this relationship with God. And so when the time came when God needed a champion, he had one. He had one. And see, the, the danger with media is it takes our time. It draws us away. Not just to see evil things, not evil things, but just things that cut into God's time. In other words, the amount of time, you know, I don't know about your computer, or your, my, my iPad tells me how long I've been on it. That's annoying. It told me this morning, you've been on 40% less this week. I said, I've been eating. <laughs> I didn't have time for you, sweetheart, Siri. I've been eating. But I'm just being honest. It's hard. It's hard. So many alternatives, so many other things to look at than to pick up the book and open it up and read the words of God. And so that has to change. Because it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter how excited we get one day a week. The giant doesn't care. And I think within this story of David is our own story this morning of God preparing another generation to battle against Goliath. I think the younger generation is going to take on digital Babylon. Digital Babylon created them and they're going to dismantle digital, they're going to dismantle digital Babylon. I think they, they have a capacity to take something that was meant to be used against them and going to be used that to bless them and to bless the kingdom of God. And so... Within this story, a, a generation deemed unfit and unqualified must begin winning the battle in the hidden places. And you can't let, the, the, you can't let public opinion, you can't let the news reshape your values. You, you, you can't all of a sudden think an unborn child has no rights. You can't start thinking that I can choose my gender. You can't start thinking that, that, that homosexuality is acceptable. Simply because... They tell you that you must or you're a hater. I'm not a hater. I'm a follower of the living God. He loves you, but that's just wrong. And so you're going to have to get some, you're going to have to get some, some courage back in your heart and, and to be able to draw a line in the sand and say, listen, I love you, but I, I won't go there. And I, I won't allow, I won't allow technology and Google and Apple to reshape my, my values. I mentioned in the earlier service, we're so obsessed with fairness. What about righteousness? Do you care as much about righteousness or just about fairness? It isn't about fairness, folks. It's about God. He created everything, okay? And everything exists because of him. And he has put in, to, to, these aren't orders that he, he put in there to hurt us. It's when man shakes his fence against God, he changes what God meant for good and turns it into evil. Every battle, every struggle you face in life is preparation. So David is God's champion, but he arrives unappreciated and <laughs> underheralded and in the eyes of another generation underequipped. He doesn't have what it takes. This is why Saul says in 1 Samuel 17, verse 37, then Saul dressed David in his own armor. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around, but he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, and put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag. And with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. 
He goes, listen, I know, I know that's, that's how your generation did it, and I appreciate it. God bless you guys. But this giant's coming down another way. This giant's not going to fall like he fell to you. A sword worked for you, but I got some other stuff here I'm really good at, Dad. I'm really good at this. When I first got saved, our pastor was from Arkansas. That says it all. That's where he was from. He's just a kind of a hillbilly sort of guy. And he didn't know anything about hippies and kids and rock music. He just a guy that's preaching Jesus. We got saved. And we said, you know what? We can reach our friends if you let us play our music to them. If you let us just do what we do and be who we are as Christians, we can do it. So he said, okay. He hated the music. He hated it. Drove him insane. But he saw kids getting saved. We do, a, we do a concert, then we give our testimonies. And kids that get saved, and kids that get saved. Sometimes 60 out of whack would get saved. And Pastor, he hated that music. Oh my God, that music is going to be in hell, I'm sure. <laughs> and we're, we're, we're taking a, a secular song. We're taking the Doobie Brothers. Jesus is just all right. And then we should play that thing out there, you know. It's hilarious. And he turned us loose. And because he did... Had a revival. Swept, swept. David knows the battle is going to be in God's hands because a giant that can only be defeated by total dependence on God. It's not going to come the other way. So David goes out to battle. He's almost naked in the eyes of anyone that was a soldier. He's, he's naked. What's he, what's he doing? But he knows the battle is the Lord's. When you spend time with God you realize it all is in his hand. It isn't up to me. It isn't about what I can do. It isn't about how good I am or how strong I am. It's how strong and how good you are. And when you know that, you can go against anything. You're unintimidated. You're unfazed by the size of the issue or anything. You just go against it. This is why people in my generation are often intimidated by technology. But, you know, your seven-year-old daughter, program my phone. They <laughs> get it. Many in the modern church have stepped back from Goliath, reframed their theology. That's what the church feels like sometimes, going up against the giants of digital Babylon, giants that control the narrative and the information and the access point to billions of minds. Think about that. Those people control the access points to billions of minds. You can, get, you can get on there, but they control the flow. And David knows something we all need to know. The giant is not as strong as they were led to believe. All, that you, all you see coming against our world, uh, that, that, all that stuff is not as big as you think it is. And behind the shouts of defiance, there was a large head that we made an enormous target. <laughs> You know, there was weaknesses in built. I mentioned that in the earlier service, Malcolm Gladwell has a great book on, on David and Goliath. And he says, giants are not what we think they are. The same qualities that look to be their strength are also the source of their weakness. So our job this morning is to reframe the contest, to reframe the narrative. And we aren't coming in all that pride and bluster of the media and the technology giants, but we're coming in the name of the Lord of hosts. That's what we're coming in. Yeah, that's, a, that's our power, that's our strength, that's our foundation. We come in the name of the living God. It's an extraordinary time in human history. The world is more anxious. The world is more restless. We've never been more divided as a nation than we are this morning. Increasingly disconnected and purposeless. Digital Babylon is actually creating the human conditions that are going to defeat it. Because there's hope in God this morning. And there is hope coming from God's people this morning. There are people that are winning battles in hidden places that God is growing. I was at a youth conference in Palm Springs this summer, and there were probably 1,800 young people there. I didn't like their music either. Because we know all the best music. We know where it came from. I'm just saying. But anyhow, <laughs> I'm watching these kids, and I'm so encouraged by what I'm seeing this bold 
you know, and not my style, not, you know, I'm 68, what's my style? But it's, the, it's not that, but it's so strong. And it's so bold and it's so in the devil's face. It's just, I'm, and I just left that place saying, oh, thank you, Jesus. You're raising up David. You have these unexpected champions that the world is thinking are the cause of the problem. No, no, no an answer. There's going to be an answer come out of that that you and I never see. I was telling the service this morning, what struck me so, so odd is we live in strange times when, a, when men who once pastored large mega churches and authored books Josh Harris wrote the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Then publicly, after pastoring a church of thousands, goes online and deconstructs his faith. I don't believe anymore, he says. I don't have any faith anymore. It's all bogus. That while Christians are dropping out, and while they're declaring online that their faith is false, God is reaching down and touching a troubled celebrity hip-hop artist who's preaching Jesus is king. That blows me away. That, that just astounds me. See, and and I, I hate rap. I just don't care for it. It's okay. I think God likes it, probably. But I'm thinking, Kanye West? God says, I'll touch Kanye West. I says, to me, that is fantastic that he would do that. And I don't care what you believe, but you re read his lyrics. They're as solid as they can be. They're, they're more solid than some songs come out of that place. <laughs> solid. Glorifying of God and glorifying of It's amazing. You look back at his earlier stuff. God's been dealing with him for years. And brings him along. And he's just doing it in a way that the institutional church is like, ah! Pop-up churches? That's brilliant. If I was 18, I'd be right on board. I'm on board now. Because that's how God works. Just when you think it's all, everything's all, it's, 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 it's over, this terrible generation, this doom, nothing but doom and gloom. No, God's raising up unexpected champions, unexpected people in unexpected places. Bow our heads this morning. Let's bow our heads this morning. Maybe you came today, you don't know this great Jesus we're talking about, this Savior, this one that can forgive sin and change lives. Listen, he's amazing. He's amazing. I met him when I was 19. And I'm telling you, he is a life changer. He is a hope fulfiller. He is an emptiness filler. He is a purpose giver. And he is a lover of souls. And there's no, it's impossible in sentences to describe how good God is. I will say this, if you really knew right now, this morning, if you could have a clear picture of how good God is, you would leap from your chair and you would run to the, you'd run to the front for prayer. If you, if you caught it for a moment, if your heart for one instant and your mind could be cleared and you can see his love and his goodness and his kindness and what he's done for you through his son's death on the cross. It would so overwhelm you. It would so overwhelm you, you wouldn't know what to speak. And I'm here this morning to tell you that that is all true and more. And all you have to do is open the door. All you have to do is just basically right where you're sitting this morning say, God, I believe in your son Jesus dying for my sins and raising from the dead the third day. I believe that right now. I believe it. That's all. And the moment you confess him, he'll give you a gift of faith to hold on to that confession and enable you to walk with him and learn his ways and learn his heart, learn his language, learn his grace and kindness, a life-changing experience. And I wonder if there's anyone here this morning that would like to pray that simple prayer. If you do one thing before you leave, just raise your hand where I can see it so I know this morning that God has done a work in someone's life that's not saved. Anyone at all. God bless you. Anyone at all. Then let's all stand to our feet, shall we? Well, listen, it's been a hoot. <laughs> As usual, I'm always a wild card. John really never knows what he's going to get. <laughs> what he's going to get when I come. I'll just blast off with something. 
But I, I tell you this, I'm not pastoring right now. I'm out preaching in different churches. I was in Rhode Island this month preaching. Tiverton, Rhode Island, little place. Then I was up in the mountains of by Lake Arrowhead at a men's retreat. Listen, God's moving. God's moving, man. He's moving. And don't ever let, don't ever let uh, the devil lie to you that, well, you know, it's all over this generation or that generation. It's all bogus. It's all designed. The Bible's God hates those that sow discord among brethren. And that's age discord or, or race discord or status and life discord. He hates that because he wants us to be one. And I want to encourage you, the best is yet to come for this church. It's great days ahead. God's given you a fantastic leadership and a staff. And I love this church. I love what God's doing here. And, uh, you know, you've been through some stuff. Churches do. They ebb and they flow. They up and they go. <laughs> Things happen. But I'm telling you that there's no shortage of sinners. On the streets of Kingman, Arizona, I have not noticed a shortage of sinners. There's apparently a few we haven't reached. Just saying. Just walk into any bar down there, you'll probably find a few. A few that, there's still a few stragglers that aren't saved and born again and spirit-filled this morning. So the task is before us. And I believe God's going to do some great things. Would you give him a, a praise offering as pastor comes this morning? Praise God. What a wonderful message. Amen. We're going to let you go. Our prayer team is going to come up real quick. If you have a need of any kind, come on up. Let them pray for you. rest of you, we want you to have just a wonderful afternoon. Enjoy yourself. We'll see you next week. God bless you. We love you. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the New Life Kingman podcast. We can't wait to see you next week.